I love that you are here. This is the time in our worship where we give our attention to the words of God. A pastor will stand and try to be helpful in speaking those words to you. Easily, today is the most intense sermon that I've prepared probably in about five years. So I want you to be ready for that. There will be some silence in the room at different times. That's a good thing. You are looking to see how the words that I use line up with the words that God has given to us in Scripture and that you may be shaped by them. Uh, Easily the most frequent pastoral question that we've received in the last couple years has been around issues of sexual distinction, whether that be personal, something we are working through, whether that be family or friends, whether that be just trying to understand how do I live in our culture, that has easily been the most common pastoral question that we have received from you. Since we're preaching on the doctrine of man and since Scripture speaks very helpfully, beautifully to this issue, that's what we're going to talk about today. I want you to remember the the two things that we hold together in all of our life together and in the preaching of the Word. So we call them gospel centrality, and orthodox theology. Gospel centrality and orthodox theology, they go together like this. So nothing that the Bible says about your sexuality or about anything else makes any sense if the central thing that the Bible says is not true. The central thing that the Bible says is called gospel. That God is beautiful and holy, and good, and loving, that we are broken, and lost, and sinful, and doomed, but that God has acted in grace and in mercy to remedy this problem through the life, and the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for us. We have been forgiven of sin, and freed from sin, and welcomed into the kingdom of God. That is what we call gospel, and it is the best news that there is. If that is not true, then we should just shut this place down. We should just grab our kids, walk out the back door, lock it, and throw away the key. But it is true. It is, it is true. And because the gospel is grace to sinners... That means that there is no pride in this room. There is no fear of the other in this room. There is no self-righteousness in this room. We are all a mess, and we are all working our way toward Jesus. Okay, That's where the orthodox theology piece comes in. God has spoken in His Word truth about who we are, and who He is, and what it means for us to live for His glory, and a good pastor calls you to that. Remember Paul in the book of Acts saying to those that he pastored, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you the full counsel, the whole counsel of God. So that is the terrifying but beautiful call of a 
shepherd and a pastor, and that's what we get to do today. I will leave a kabillion things unsaid because we only have so much time. With a sermon like this, you just, you have to stick with me to the end. Even if in the middle you're waving around, wherever you may land at the end, stick with it to the end. Okay, let's pray. Ask God for grace to us. Father, we love your words. Uh, we have a very hard time submitting to them. And so does all of Bostonian culture that we're a part of and we love. I pray that you would bring a different spirit this morning, a spirit of humility and receipt and obedience, and hope and love, that you would work your transforming grace in all of our hearts. If you don't show up, we are dead. We are relying on the power of your spirit to cause our eyes to see what is true and good and beautiful. So come and do that this morning, I pray. Amen. Okay, let's begin with the, the first thing, the big question that Scripture will answer for us. We'll start here. As a human being, this is an identity series, as a human being, is your identity, your sexual identity, determined by your body or by your feelings? Is it determined by who you are physically or by how you experience attraction. Sam Albury, I don't know if you know who that is, he is a Christian brother who lives and ministers in the UK. He recently did an event here in the States. It was very moving because he began by talking first person from his experience. For Sam, from puberty on, same-sex attraction was a reality for him. He talks about how he didn't ask for that. He didn't make some kind of decision to have feelings for the young men in his school and not the young women. It just was who he was. He's in his late 30s now, and he said, nothing has changed dramatically for me right there. Those same feelings, those same attractions, they come naturally to me. They are all that I have known all of my life. And yet here is how Sam Albury talks about who he is. Now again, this is not me talking, this is Sam speaking. He says this, people often say to me, Sam, the gospel must be really hard for you because it goes against who you are. But I answer, please don't say that. My sexual feelings are not who I am. Our culture preaches that your sexuality is your feelings, that those feelings define you, that they are who you are when you are the most you, that they are the key to understanding your real self. But I think that that is a woefully inadequate way for accounting for what a human being is. My sexual identity is found in my body that God has given me and not in my feelings. Okay, this is a gay man saying these words. Now, in 2015, Bostonia, they sound wild and potentially offensive. We don't think that way. For us, our physical bodies are kind of irrelevant. It is our attractions that are everything that matter. What we feel emotionally, 
you could call it psychologically, that's what determines who we are. And so as a result, we do with our bodies what feels like we should do. We could say it like this, orientation trumps physicality. That's the the world that we live in. Okay, so which is it? Is Sam Albury crazy? Or is Sam Albury correct? Well, what I'm hoping that you see today is that when Sam talks this way, all he is really doing is echoing and embracing one facet of what we call the biblical doctrine of man. It's the facet that teaches us that in wisdom and in love for his glory, for our good, God, our creator, chose to embed a sexual distinction in the human body. And he assigns to all of us a body that is either male or female, and he commands us, he calls us to walk holy in it. This is what Sam is saying. All right, let's work the text and see if we can see that in here. Remember, these are God's words. They're eternally true and they're super helpful. So we're in Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible. We've said two things so far. The first one is this. Knowing who you are does not begin with you. It begins with God. In the beginning, not you or me, but in the beginning, God is the opening words of Scripture. All things spin back to him, and so he has authority to say what is what. Good thing or bad thing. We also said that is unbelievably good news because this triune God who has created all things is infinitely loving and beautiful and good. And so our deepest joy and God's highest glory intersect when we say yes to who he has made us to be. That's gospel and that's the beginning of this series. Last week we said this, we as human beings, a man or a woman, you have incredible, inherent, unrivaled dignity and worth. I mean, I I had a hard time standing up here last week with a hundred image bearers of God looking at me. I was like overwhelmed by that. It took my breath away. Both sexes equally, all men, all women, all children, all people bear the image of God. Okay, so we laid that down in our hearts last week. Now for the next three weeks, we get to press on the complementary truth to that one, that while we are all equal in dignity and worth, we are not the same. We're not the same. There is a distinction within that equality, a physical, sexual distinction. We are male and we are female. Okay, let's see that in the text. How does creation begin? This is the words of Scripture, how creation begins. The earth was without form, void, Darkness was over the face of the deep. Okay, do you feel this? At first, the creation, the created world was just without form. So there was an indistinct, undifferentiated, confused, muddy, dark gray, blah mess. And what does God begin to do now 
in his creative work. He begins to draw distinctions. God loves distinctions. The first distinction is what? Light and darkness. And God separated the light from the darkness. Do you feel that? Separation, differentiation, division, distinction. This is not that, that is not this. And then what does God call that first distinction? He calls it good. Okay, second, earth and skies separated. And God called it good. Next, land and sea distinctified. And God called it good. Then life from non-life, plants, trees, sunflowers, roses created, different than dirt and rocks. And then night and day, sun and moon. And then conscious life from unconscious life or living, breathing life, sea creatures, birds, animals, distinctified from plants, trees, flowers. And then human life from animal life. We saw that last week. He slows down with the creation of humanity, a distinction between men and animals. And then... Ultimately, within man, what does God do? The highest act of his creation. God distinctifies man, male and female. Okay, let's look closely at that text together. Here it is. So God created man, up read in here is the Hebrew words. So God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male, Zakar, and female, Nekavah, he created them. Okay, three observations from this text. The word that we translate man, that's the Hebrew word Adam. It means dirt or ground or the, the red earth. Edom is a, another word we see in the Older Covenant, which means red, red-headed. Adam means the red earth the ground, the dirt. The point is what? We are all Adam. To be a human being is to be physical. It's to be physical. We are not ghosts, apparitions, disembodied souls. Our souls have been tied down to bodies. And these bodies... Although they they die because of sin, they will be resurrected and they will live forever. In other words, your body is yours forever. And so our bodies are not incidental to our personhood or who we are. What we do with our bodies matters. To be human is to be embodied in the image of God. You and I, we are Adam. We are Adam together. Second observation, from the beginning, God did what? He embedded a sexual distinction in those bodies. So there's some grown-up talk here, but zakar, that's the Hebrew word for male anatomy, penis, testicles, high testosterone levels. Nekavah, that's the Hebrew word that communicated the female anatomy, the female body. Vagina, womb, breasts estrogen. Man, Adam, is created equal side by side, but one is male 
and one is female. So some of this is just 101 stuff, but I need to draw it out for you. Do you see that God did not create two zakars? Do you see that God did not create two nekavahs? Do you see that God did not create a sexless, androgynous, neutered humanity of some sort? One race, two distinct sexes, explicit in the text. Okay, and then one more observation. Please don't miss this. God placed his benediction on this work of his, his blessing. Genesis 1.31, it's got a, uh-oh, I think it's an adverb. You English people can correct me. Behold, it was very good. Is very an adverb? Yes, okay, good. Very good. This creation of Adam, this distinctifying Zakar and Nekavah, this reality, God said, very good. In other words, this was no mistake. God did not create us male and female and then go, whoa, whoa, mulligan, mulligan, hang on. Can we go backwards in time? This is not an arbitrary accident of evolution. This is not mere cultural convention with the force of long-standing tradition. It's none of those things. Scripture, that's what we're dealing with, teaches us that from the beginning, this is how God intended for things to be. This is who we are. Okay, and so what were Adam and Eve called to do with the bodies that God had assigned to them? Receive them. Adam was to receive his male body and the masculinity that attended it and walk holy in that. Eve was to receive her female body, the femininity that attended it, and walk holy in that. And how serious is the Lord about this? How serious? Very, very, very serious. All throughout the rest of Scripture, God insists that every man and every woman honor and embrace his gift of sexuality, the sex that he has given them, and to walk holy in it. So we could say it like this. Throughout Scripture, this sexual distinction, distinction that it begins with, it holds, it holds. Whenever a man or a woman or a community moves in the direction of, and I'll give you a bunch of words here, denying, blurring, confusing, flattening, ignoring, erasing, reversing, any of those things, this sexual distinction that God wrote, embedded, and said was very good, it's always bad news in the Bible when we're doing that. Nowhere in Scripture does that kind of thing receive praise or condoning. In fact, it's always the opposite. To say no to the sexual distinction is an affront to the, to the holiness, and the authority, the goodness of God. Now, I don't have time to run through all the mentions of where the distinction is being ignored or confused in Scripture. But in every text, older covenant and new, the story is the same. There's no life there. There's no blessing there. So Genesis 19, we could look at that. Jude 7, speaking toward that. Leviticus 18, just a quick mention on this. This is where for the older covenant people of God, there was a clear prohibition on same-sex practice, 
This is the verse from Scripture. You shall not lie with a male as with a female. And then a very intense and difficult word. It is an abomination. So that's the most intense possible word that the Spirit could have inspired there. What's especially instructive is that that command does not float out in the middle of nowhere. It's tied down to the sexual morality code for God's people in the Older Covenant, which includes, right in that same section of Scripture, laws that prohibit incest, protecting the distinction between parent and child. Laws that prohibit bestiality, protecting the distinction between man and animal. And then laws on same-sex practice, protecting the distinction between man and woman. Do you feel that? So this is serious, and it's about the distinction holding. Jesus teaches us in Mark 7 that porneia, which is also an ugly word for all manner of sexual sin. It's kind of a junk draw term that included practice that we have all, many of us, most of us, been engaged in. Also including same-sex practice, porneia, all sexual behavior outside of a male-female marriage covenant. And Jesus says that is an unclean act that emerges from a sinful, messed up soul. There's a long list of things. We've got to preach hard on all of them. This is one of them. Romans 1, Paul gives the blurring of the sexual distinction as an example for idolatry and how we exchange worship of the Creator for the creature. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes that both the active and the passive partners in same-sex practice will miss out on the kingdom of God. Now again, that's a long list of things. That one is in there. It's a breathtaking warning. 1 Timothy 1, Paul includes those who practice same-sex practice in a long list of those who live contrary to sound doctrine. Contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, I could keep going. I'm just belaboring the point for clarity. Scripture, as far as Scripture goes, it's clear and consistent on this truth, which is so helpful to us. At the beginning of our existence, God wrote into our bodies a sexual identity, male or female, man or woman. He's serious about a ton of things in our lives. And this is one of them. There's many others. This is one of them. The sexual distinction holding is crucial. Okay, and so you and me, all of us, a question is posed to us based on the teaching of Scripture. Will you receive or reject the sexuality that God has assigned to you? Okay, reject is the spirit of our day. We could go through thousands of examples. I just want to give you one so that you can hear what this sounds like, so at least you can see it, smell it, taste it, know how it feels. This is Luke Timothy Johnson. He's a New Testament scholar, and he writes these words. Hear them with me. He says, I have very little patience with efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says, to appeal to hermeneutical or linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says. Okay, pause right there. 
Very important for you to hear this. This is not coming from an evangelical pastor. This is not coming from a gospel author. This is coming from what we might call a liberal New Testament scholar who rejects the inspiration of Scripture, rejects the clear teaching of Scripture. He is saying, hey, what your pastor just said is actually perfectly true and we're not arguing with it from a biblical point of view. But then he goes on to say, ah, but what are we to do with what the text says? In other words, he's about to answer this question. And here is his answer. I think it is important to clearly state that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and we appeal instead to another authority when we declare same-sex practice can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? I'm still reading. We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others like us, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is to accept the way in which God has created us. Okay, you feel that? That's the other side of this. What is he saying? So he is saying the opposite of what I began with today, the opposite of what Sam Albury is saying. He is saying God's word shouldn't get to define us, and it doesn't get to define me. He's actually saying that clearly. I I just read the quote to you. It doesn't matter what the text says. Did, Did you hear that? He is saying God's providential wiring of my body with a specific sex That does not get to define me. It doesn't matter whether I am made male or female. My experience gets to define me. That's that's what he said. My orientation gets to define me. My attractions get to define me. That's not how gospel faith responds here. Gospel faith says, Father, I am yours I'm going to, by faith, receive the distinction that you have written into this body that you have given me. I'm going to trust what your word says about my body, driving my sexuality, and not the other way around. And you got to help me walk holy in that. Gospel faith receives. We have an unbelievable opportunity as Jesus' people here to live this doctrine out together. And so the last thing that I want to do is talk directly to you about what that can look like. And I want to say three things to you. So here's the first one. We must, we must love people for whom embracing their God-given sexuality is a struggle. Who would say, I have the wrong body here. God messed up. And I don't just mean people outside the life of our church. Many of you right here live there. We are called to love one another, to love one another. Jesus' church should be the safest place on earth for folks who are dealing with distinction-denying feelings and attractions. 
for folks who look at their bodies and say, I, I think God messed up with me. Why? Why is that the case? Because Jesus' people, of all people, should understand that we are broken in our sexuality. None of us slides easily, naturally, effortlessly into our manhood or our womanhood or sexual purity. We are all terribly out of sync with everything in our lives, and that includes our sexual desires. Every single one of us is attracted to things that we should not be. All of us have desires of one sort or another that we shouldn't have. Nobody is straight. Such a ridiculous adjective. Nobody is straight. Everyone is skewed. Same-sex attraction is just one expression of the brokenness that we all share. I don't know why, but historically there has been this tendency for Christians to distance ourselves personally from people on this one issue. The absolute opposite needs to be true. We, of all people, should extend hospitality, welcome to those who find themselves in this place. Now, that doesn't mean celebrating the blurring of the sexual distinction. You know I'm not saying that. But it means moving toward people who bear the image of God. That, that's the call for us. If a gay man or a lesbian woman or Bruce Jenner, right? You saw that on Friday night. If Bruce Jenner was around Seven Mile Road for a year, we would want them to be able to give witness and to say, these people love me. If we have sons and daughters growing up in the next 10 years in the life of this church through puberty, and this is a struggle for them, the first thing that should come to mind is, my pastors and the people in that church loved me. They were for me and my eternal joy. That's the first thing that this doctrine should drive us to. And many of you have done and are doing wonderfully with that. And I love you for it. I love you for it. Let's not fade from that place. Okay, second thing. We also, at the same exact time, need to celebrate the sexual distinction that God has given us between our men and our women. So out of fear, there is this tendency, even in churches who kind of submit to the clear teaching of Scripture and believe that what God teaches is good and beautiful and true, to kind of hide on this doctrine, to just not talk about it, or to treat it like, ah, it's unfortunate that God has done this, but let's just grit our teeth and bear it. That's wrong. The sexual distinction is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a true thing. We get to to plan a church that celebrates it. Why do you constantly hear me say, let's pray for our sons and daughters, and not just let's pray for our kids? Why do I say sons and daughters? Trying to celebrate 
this distinction to the glory of God. Why will we spend a couple of weeks here thinking on masculinity and femininity, what they are not and what they are? Celebrating the distinction. Why do we spend the first entire overnight in Kalos track with the women saying, let's talk about how God sees that our discipleship is not androgynous, but sex-specific, and it looks a specific way for a woman to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why do you think we insist that our pastors be masculine in their leadership of the church? It's because in God's world and in our homes and in this community, men are not women. Women are not men. We are equal, but we are distinct, and that is for God's glory. Don't ever be embarrassed by that. Okay, and the last one. Deny yourself and take up your cross. And I do not mean just the Sam Alberry's and the Jackie Hill Perry's and the Rosaria Butterfields who are a part of the broader Christian community. Please don't miss this. The most loving thing that you could ever do for someone for whom obedience to this doctrine is rough and rugged is for you to believe the gospel, is for you to deny yourself, is for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus in your own life. See, at the end of the day, this doctrine is incredibly hard for many of us. Luke Timothy Johnson feels it, right? And he just says, I can't go there. I can't go there. This doctrine is saying to some of us, yes, you have yearnings that might not be fulfilled in this life, but Jesus is better. And it's in Jesus that your deepest yearnings are met. This means saying to some of us in the life of our community, yeah, Jesus may be calling you to celibacy. And that is intense. It's what Jesus does. Don't forget when the disciples said to Jesus, whoa, whoa, Jesus, your view of marriage is narrow and intense. It might be better not to marry. What does Jesus say to them? He says, yeah, it is narrow and intense because this is what the Father has done. He says, yeah. He starts talking about eunuchs. He says, you may need to make yourself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of God. Don't you love Jesus? He doesn't pull punches with the cost of gospel life. Some of us are looking at a celibate life if we're going to be faithful. Our actual sexual feelings may not change substantially, but the gospel says it doesn't matter. Jesus is so much better than anything that he calls you to give up. But here's the thing. How dare we say that to someone if we have not given anything up for Jesus? How dare we say that? 
How dare we tell someone, whoa, whoa, you're gay, and so you really got to deny yourself and take up your cross if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. But me, not so much. Not so much. How dare we say to someone, you've got to flip your life upside down to inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, but Jesus just slots very neatly into my life. How dare we say that? How dare we say that? And this is a huge sin of the Christian church. How dare we say to someone, you have to deny yourself sexual relations, but I'm going to stick with my porn use, and I'm going to stick with my lust. How, how dare we be that hypocritical? No way. When someone who is struggling with this cost of discipleship, what they need if they're struggling with this doctrine is for there to be a church, somewhere a church within reach of them where they can come and not only be desperately and deeply and wholeheartedly loved, but you know what they need? Real bad. They need to see a hundred people, two hundred people who have given up everything that does not accord with godliness in their lives for the sake of the gospel. If that doesn't exist, how dare we call them to it? They need to know that exists. This gospel is real. It's real. They need there to be a community somewhere where people have cast down every idol that keeps them from worship of the true God. They need to be a community somewhere where there are wounds and we say, and we have lost relationships and reputation and security and pleasures. We've lost pleasures, but we've gained Christ and he was worth it. The most loving thing that we can do is build that kind of community together. The most loving thing that you can do for your son, your daughter, your friend, your cousin, your niece, who struggles to embrace this doctrine, is for you to live a life that is radically sold out for Jesus, that is believing the gospel down into your bones. You want to help someone here? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Give it all up for Jesus. That's the big idea of this sermon. That's the big idea of this truth. That's the big idea of the gospel. The kingdom of God is worth leaving everything else behind. Jesus tells us that on the front end, and he bids us come, and it's worth it for all of us, whatever the cost. But I'm going to pray for you now. I'm going to pray that God would convince you that what he says is good and beautiful and true. I'm going to pray that as you wrestle with these things in real life, the all-surpassing worth of Christ is real and tangible to you. And I have been begging Jesus for years to bring gay men and lesbian women 
the people in these cities who struggle with this doctrine into the life of this church so that we can meet them and welcome them and love them. Will you pray that with me this morning? Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is life to us. We know that persecution attends being Christians. There's never been a faithful church or Christian in the history of the world who didn't get beat up for standing with Jesus. I pray that you'd give us the courage to do that. But I pray that in that standing, you would strip us of all pride, all arrogance, all self-righteousness, that we would be the most humble, most broken, most patient, most kind, most gospel-centered people that this city has ever seen. I pray that you would help all of us, all of us, to say yes to who you've made us to be and that the fruit and the joy that is there and that is coming forever would be joy to us without your grace. We cannot get there, but I pray that you would visit us in this time especially, in this space especially, with the truth that you hold out for us. We're yours. We're yours. Amen.